Father, we thank you for this evening. Thank you for your word. And thank you for this passage that records for us the words of Jesus Christ. And Father, as we unpack these verses tonight, I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to each one of our hearts, that they would come alive, that they wouldn't be just rote, they wouldn't be something we've heard a million times and don't mean anything to us. I pray, Father, that, they w- that we would take what we hear and that your Holy Spirit would encourage us, convict us, whatever it is we need, that it would happen tonight so that we would walk out of here closer to you and with a greater desire to serve you, live for you, and to be salt and light in the world where you've placed us. Father, I pray that as we uh, go through this tonight, that we would take all the cares of the day, the worries, the concerns, everything about tomorrow, that we could just put that aside and come and listen to what you have to say to us. And I pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so if you've got your Bibles, open them up. We're going to be in uh, chapter 6. We're going to read this passage first. We'll start with verse 19, and we're going to go all the way through to verse 34, the end of the chapter. And uh, once again, as we read it, try to get into that mindset that we've been talking about for the last four weeks of first century Jew sitting on the hillside listening to Jesus speak. You're not a believer. You've never heard about the gospel. Jesus Christ has not died on the cross. As far as you know, Jesus is just a miracle worker. He's a rabbi. He's a teacher. He's up there speaking, and you're surrounded by your friends, peers, all kinds of people. They've come from all over, and you're listening to this guy talk. And so listen like you've heard it for the first time. And he says in verse 19, chapter 6, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith... Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. You know that last line? I've never done it, but I've always wanted to put that on a coffee mug. Sufficient, how's he say it? Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. That is so true, right? Why worry about tomorrow? Because today's got enough problems of its own. 
What in the world is he saying in these verses? You know, it's interesting, as you look at some of the commentators, um, over the centuries as people have unpacked this and tried to dissect it, one of the things they've said about the Sermon on the Mount is they've, because it seems, in this particular section, seems very disjointed. And there are those who over the years would just basically say, well, none of this was really a sermon. It's a collection of writings or a, collections, a collection of sayings. He really didn't preach this. He didn't really say this. Somebody gathered it. Matthew gathered it. There's another version that Luke has. And it's just, it's almost like proverbial sayings of Jesus. And if you read this, it sounds kind of proverbial, doesn't it? Just like little, little proverbs. But I'm convinced this is a, path, a, a message. This is a sermon that he preached. And these verses, while they may sound, sound a little bit disconnected, really do fit together. And we're going to see that he's got a, a method to his madness. He's got a, a rhyme and reason to what he's trying to say to these people who are hearing him say this for the very first time. And it all goes back to this issue we've talked about for the last three weeks. It's, it's the counterculture, the revolution that he's bringing into that society. Remember, he's predominantly talking to Jews. That's his ministry at this point. And he's telling them something that is countercultural to what they've heard. Um, they've grown up with a certain mindset, a certain uh, teaching, understanding about what the kingdom of God is. And when they hear kingdom, because of you know, their culture, you hear the word kingdom and you think king and you think palace and you think royalty and you think army and robes because that's what they were used to. They were a, a culture, they were a nation that had had lots of kings, good ones, bad ones, ones that didn't last very long with some that lasted a long time. But they knew what a king was and you had to have a king to have a kingdom. And so here's Jesus talking about the kingdom. And as we said week one, the whole book of Matthew is about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. But they have a different view of what that means. And Jesus, as we've already seen, starting with chapter five with the Beatitudes and all the way through to where we are tonight, Jesus is saying, the kingdom I'm talking about, the kingdom I'm bringing is not of this world. It's an otherworldly kind of kingdom. It's different than what you expect. And because it's different than what you expect, the citizens of that kingdom will live differently than what you might anticipate. And so much of what he's described already in what we've read over the last three weeks, four weeks now, is a way of them to understand that what you think you know is not reality. There's a new reality. There's a new culture coming that is not of this world. And that's going to be real critical as we go through these verses because he's going to talk about treasure on earth and treasure in heaven. And he's going to talk about, you know, a good eye and a bad eye. And we'll figure out what that means in a second. But this idea that we live in this world, but we're really not of this world is key to what he's trying to tell them. And he's trying to tell you and I. So this world is different. The kingdom he's talking about is different. And it has heavenly values not earthly values. Now, if you had been there that day standing on the hillside, um, you would have fit right in except for the way you're dressed because you would have had the same mindset as, as any Jew standing there because you would have been obsessed with food, clothing, shelter, career, money, reputation, 
All those things, just like you are today, you would have cared about back then because they cared about those things. They were people of what? The earth. They were people who lived on this earth and had to sweat to work and get food and take care of their families and put them through synagogue school and, you know, do the carpool. And they had to do all those things. And they lived in a world that was basically of this earth. And so Jesus comes along and he goes, no, no, no. My kingdom's an earth, not an earthly kingdom. It's a heavenly kingdom, and it doesn't have the same values. You are going to have to have an eternal perspective. And what's interesting about the Jews, uh, they didn't really live with an eternal perspective. They lived with a temporal perspective. They expected the blessings of God to come now, here and now. They expected the Messiah to come here and now. And when the Messiah came, he would bring with him blessings earthly material blessings. He would rule. He would get rid of the Romans. He would put them back in power, the Jews. He would reestablish the kingdom of David. It would go back to the glory days of David and Solomon. But they thought on a very temporal plane and in a very earthly temporal perspective. And so in their mind, and this is going to be really important to understanding what Jesus is saying and how they're going to receive it, the Jewish mindset on material things was really kind of different. Now, we love material things. But for them, material things were a sign of God's blessing. Okay? If you had money, you were blessed of God. It didn't really matter how you lived your life. You know, they didn't really look at your life, and they didn't really worry about what your heart was like. They just looked at you and went, man, that guy's loaded. He's got to be blessed by God. And they do just the opposite. If you were poor, if you were blind, if you were lame, they would look at you and go, man, he's done something to hack God off. Or he is one of the greatest sinners that's ever lived because look at him, he's blind, he's lame. He can't even walk. So they had this kind of really interesting perspective about prosperity, blessing. And remember, we started out in chapter five with what? Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. They thought blessing was always tied to materialism. And we'll see why. It's a sign of God's approval. But again, remember we said, when, when Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, blessed are the persecuted, that really can be translated approved by God, approved are. Because he's talking about the kingdom that he's coming to bring. And in his kingdom, it's different. See, in their kingdom, their understanding, their worldview was, if you're wealthy, you're blessed. And Jesus comes along and says, no, if you're poor in spirit, you're blessed. If you're meek, you're blessed. If, you're, if you hunger and thirst after righteousness, you're blessed. And so it was really everything he says and has said is counter to what they believed and understood. So let's take a look. These are just a few quotes. Listen to this. In general, Jewish texts have portrayed poverty as an unjustifiable burden. These are all in your notes, so you don't have to write it down. So poverty was a burden, and it was unjustifiable. You can't justify poverty. So if you're poor, you've done something to hack God off. You have sinned in some incredible way. So you can see how they bring that to the equation, they bring that to the table as Jesus is talking. Another uh, author says, the rabbis saw no virtue in poverty. 
So if there was a poor person in the synagogue, the rabbis would look at him and go, you need to get your spiritual act together. You've done something bad. You, you've got a hidden sin. You remember that, that uh, occasion where uh, the disciples uh, saw a guy and he was blind and, and uh, they said, is it because of him, his sins, or his parents' sin? And what did Jesus say? Neither. That's not how this works. You don't, go, you don't lose your sight. You don't go lame just because you sin. Now, it could happen just because you do something stupid, but that's not how God works. But that's their view of God. Well, here's a third one. Very rarely in Judaism is poverty associated with righteousness. Now, catch that. They don't associate poverty with righteousness. So think about the culture. You see a beggar, unrighteous. You see a lame person, unrighteous. You see a blind person, unrighteous. They were sinners because otherwise they wouldn't have been that way. If you see a wealthy person in nice robes, um, being carried in a divan by a group of slaves, you'd think, righteous. Got to be. And you don't know squat about that guy's life. You just look at the exterior and you go, he's blessed. Instead of being considered virtuous and desirable, poverty was viewed as pointless suffering. Remember when Job lost everything? What was the conclusion every one of his friends made? You've sinned. You've sinned against God. Otherwise, this wouldn't be happening. And poor Job's going, I, I didn't do anything. I, I haven't sinned. Oh, yeah, you have. Obviously, you have. Why? Because you're suffering, and only those who are unrighteous suffer. So this permeated Jewish thought. So to have much was thought to be a sign that God loved you much. And if you keep that in mind as we, as we kind of unpack this, you'll understand why I think they're sitting there going, this guy has lost his mind. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Because they go back to their scriptures. And all you have to do is look at Genesis 12. Their, their great patriarch Abraham, what does it say? Now, Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. What's interesting about this passage is it's right after he goes into where? Egypt. You remember he, he went into Egypt to escape a famine. God didn't tell him to go to Egypt, but he takes Sarah. He goes into Egypt. And when they get there, she was evidently beautiful. I'm not really sure how because she was pretty old. But he said, you're beautiful. You need to tell anybody who meets us that you're my sister. And why she did it, she, she okay, all right. And what happens? Pharaoh sees her. He thinks she's gorgeous. And he takes her. And then he finds out she's married. And he gives her back. And he's kind of hacked. Because he thinks, what do, you, what do you think you're doing? You almost made me do something I shouldn't do. But yet, what does he do? He awards and rewards Abram with all this stuff. And yet, they would look at this and go, no, no, God did it. Because he walked away, rich in livestock, silver and gold. And we know later on, all that livestock, silver and gold was going to be a major problem. Because he was going to have to split from Lot, his nephew, because they couldn't feed their flocks. So affluence is not always a blessing. I've always wanted to experience that to prove it to myself, but God's chosen not to do it. 
How about Proverbs 10, 22? The blessing of the Lord makes a person rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. Can you see why they would, they would look at these passages and go, yeah, I'll memorize that one. God makes you rich. And when he makes you rich, there's no sorrow. Man, that's, that's like a win-win. How about this one? Deuteronomy 8, 18. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth. They would read that and they would think, okay, I'm going to remember God because he's the way I get wealth. He's my ticket. And so you look at David, you look at Solomon, you look at so many of the kings and some of the great patriarchs, and they all seem to be blessed by God, and many times they were. But what they've done is they've taken that and said, that therefore is how God blesses primarily through money, through materialism, through things. But Jesus again comes, and he's talking about a totally different mindset, an eternal mindset. And he, he's, he's basically turning everything on its ear, and he's saying, no, 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 you misunderstand, you don't get it, this isn't how God works, and I am the Son of God, and I'm going to explain to you how God sees, sees things in his economy. So if we look back at verse 19, 20, and 21, it says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures in earth. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures. Now, here's the caveat for the whole rest of the lesson. God, or Christ, is not telling you it's wrong to have stuff. He's not saying it's wrong to have a nice car. He's not telling you it's wrong to have money. He's not telling you it's wrong to have a bass boat or a, a lake house. That's not the point here. So keep that in mind. But he says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures in earth, but lay up for yourselves treasures where? In heaven. Again, Jewish mindset. Blessing shows up here and now. Heaven, okay, that's later. I don't really care about that. I want it now. It's where it's really this mindset is, is the same mindset that drives the prosperity gospel today. I want my blessings now. You can have your best life now. Sounds like a great title for a book. That is not biblical. It wasn't biblical in the Old Testament. It's no, no, not biblical in the New Testament. So he goes on. He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So he get, here he's getting to the point of everything. It's your heart. Nothing wrong with stuff. But if your stuff controls your heart, you got a problem. You know, about 15, I mean, maybe 18 years ago, uh, back when I was in advertising, we, our kids were younger and we, my wife and I decided to build, have a pool built in the back of our yard. And everybody I talked to said, don't do it. You'll live to regret it. Don't do it. It's a money hole. You know, just, all you'll do is spend all your time cleaning that pool and fixing that pool. And, you know, it's like, ah, you don't know what you're talking about. So we built a pool. Um, I hate that pool. Um, <laughs> my kids are all gone. And I spend more time cleaning the pool than I've ever swam in it. And I can't even walk into my backyard without looking at that pool and going, I got to clean it again. So I just go back in the house. I would rather pay to go stay at a hotel with a clean pool than have to clean mine. And I'm too cheap to pay somebody to clean it. But here's the deal. That pool now owns me. It owns me. I can't even sit in my backyard and just relax because I look at that pool and I can tell by the way the water runs if the pump's about to go out. 
because it's gone out at least five times. And so I'll look at it and go, oh gosh, and go back in the house. Your stuff can own you, right? You know, you always want a lake house, you get a lake house and somebody breaks into it. Or the pipe breaks in the middle of the winter or it burns down or what, you know. Nothing wrong with it. But if it owns you, if it, if it has your heart, there's a problem. And I think Jesus is telling these people, your heart's in the wrong place. You're so worried about stuff that you've missed out what I've come to bring you and what God intended to bring you when he, re, when he called you out to begin with as the people of God. I want to just, I'm going to read through a portion of uh, Ecclesiastes and uh, I just want you to listen. It's in your notes, but I, I, listen to what Solomon says. We've been studying Ecclesiastes on Sunday mornings in the pulpit, and Cody preached it this last Sunday. Solomon was the son of David. He was the wisest man who ever lived. He was probably one of the wealthiest men who ever lived. He was blessed by God. He had all kinds of stuff. But what, da what Solomon did is he started out great. He ended poorly. He started out as a man after God's own heart, much like his father, but then he married lots of women. He had uh, 700 wives and 300 concubines. He was an idiot. Um, I, can't, I can't handle one, okay? Think about that. 700 wives, 300 concubines. And most of them were what? Foreigners who had foreign gods. And he began to put altars up for their gods. And he began to worship those gods. And he got away from God. And by the end of his life, God was done with him. And he split the kingdom because of him. And at the end of his life, he writes Ecclesiastes. And this is really kind of the testimony of a guy who started out well and finished poorly. And listen to what he says. I, Solomon, said to myself, come on, let's try pleasure. This is from the New Living Translation because it, it puts it in vernacular that I can understand. Let's try pleasure. I'm all over that. Let's look for the good things in life. But I found that this too was meaningless, futile, vanity of vanities, the, the way it typically gets translated. So he said, laughter is silly. What good does it do to seek pleasure? After much thought, I decided to cheer myself with wine. And while still seeking wisdom, I clutched at foolishness. In this way, I tried to experience the only happiness that people find during their brief life in this world. Now remember, he's the son of David. He's the king of Israel. He represents God for the people of Israel. And here he is at the end of his life, and he's saying, man, I've tried laughter, I've tried wine, I've tried pleasure, I've tried experience. I just want to be happy. And it just doesn't add up. Then he goes on, I also tried to find meaning by building huge homes for myself, by planting beautiful vineyards. I made gardens and parks, filling them with all kinds of fruit trees. I built reservoirs to collect the water to irrigate my many flourishing groves. I had a pool built in the back of my house. I bought slaves, both men and women, and others were born into my household. I also owned large herds and flocks, more than any of the kings who had lived in Jerusalem before me. I collected great sums of silver and gold and treasure and many kings and provinces. You know, what a, what a resume. You know, you, you could read this and almost go, man, if I could have been Solomon, if I could have had all this. 
He goes, I hired wonderful singers, both men and women, had many beautiful concubines. Yeah, 300. I had everything a man could desire. So I became greater than all who had lived in Jerusalem before me, and my wisdom never failed me. Anything I wanted, now catch this, anything I wanted, I'd take. Can you imagine? You know, one of the reasons, I'm glad God's never blessed me with affluence is this is, this is me. Anything I want, I'd take. Man, I want one of those. Just buy it. Money's not a problem. And he says, I denied myself no pleasure. I tried it all. And then he ends it up. I even found great pleasure in hard work, a reward for all my labors. But as I looked at everything I had worked so hard to accomplish, it was all so meaningless. Like chasing the wind, there was nothing really worthwhile anywhere. Now, why am I bothering to read this? It's a perfect picture of, of a life lived where your heart's in the wrong place. So you got to keep in mind, it's written at the end of his life. This is the guy who started out well, ended poorly. What, where did he screw up? He left God in the dust. And he, he started seeking anything and everything but God. You know, the sermon series we've been doing is, is all about satisfaction, finding satisfaction. But if you try to replace God with stuff, I don't care how much stuff you try, it will never satisfy. You'll never have enough money. You'll never have enough toys. You ever bought something like a car? You buy, you know, I typically just buy used cars, but I buy a new used car. And I'm so happy when I get that new used car. And I get in and I drive it and I'm kind of proud. And, and then I drive and I see somebody with a newer used car. And I'm like, God, why didn't I buy that? And it, it doesn't take an hour for your pleasure to go away because you see somebody else who has more, somebody else who has more concubines or more wives or more whatever because it can't deliver. It's meaningless. I've done a lot of funerals since I became a pastor. And I've never seen anybody take anything with them except what they're wearing. And it usually has a big split in the back. They, they may have a watch on, but guess what? It, it's not going to help them. They, they're, they're not going to take anything with them. It's all meaningless. They spend all their lives, and I've heard people eulogize people at funerals, and they'll stand up and go, man, he was a good man. He was a hard worker. He was a great businessman. He made so much money. He did this. He threw great parties. And you're like, well, he's not anymore. What does it matter? It's meaningless. Wealth in the end is meaningless. And what you've got to keep in mind is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He came from heaven. He took on flesh. He came to earth. And he's trying to tell earthbound humans there's something better. See, Jesus was here on temporary loan from the Father. He knew he was going back. And he's trying to get people prepared that you guys want to go where I'm going. This, I don't think Jesus said this, but this sucks. You know, this, don't get hung up on this because from where I come from, it's, it's a lot better. 
And he's trying to get them to understand that, that there's something greater to come. And nothing you have here can you take with you, and you don't want to. You know, I, I, don't, I, don't, I hope there aren't any pools in heaven. Or if there are, I hope some, some of you are my pool boy. You know, I just, um, it never delivers. And I love this passage from Luke. This is Jesus. He says, beware. Remember, we looked at that verse last week or one like it. He loves that word beware. Guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. Man, if, if we ever needed to hear something, we need to hear that. Because we live in a society where it's just the opposite. You are what you own. You're defined by your home, by your car, by your clothes. He says, yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. Cody preached on that this last Sunday. You're a fool, Jesus said. If you want to store up everything here, and you're not rich in your relationship with God, if you're not willing to share what you have and who you are with God, and you want more from Him than you want from this. And think about your prayer lives. This is where it'll get really dicey for you. When you start thinking about what do you pray for from God, is it almost always material? Is it almost always of this earth? You know, give me health, which is of this earth. Give me a better job, which is of this earth. Give me more stuff, which is of this earth. Or is it, I'd like peace, I'd like more joy, I'd like to know more of you. Are you more interested in this stuff or what he's got to offer? The problem is not with the things, okay? Once again, it's your affection for the things. Anytime something breaks, if you wig out, if, if you lose it because your car broke down, and I get it. I hate it when cars break down. I hate it when the refrigerator goes out. I hate that stuff. But if you wig out about that and you lose it, it's a, it's a picture of where your heart is. Because you don't want to be bothered. You don't want to be grieved. You hate to have your stuff broken or stolen. And that's a good indicator of where your heart is too. If somebody steals something of yours, are you willing to let it go? You know, we have a... Uh, some dear friends who had a lake house out on Possum Kingdom Lake and a couple of years ago whenever that, they had that big uh, fire go through there they lost the whole thing and one thing about these people and, and, and one of the reasons I say it's not bad to own stuff these people were incredibly generous they would let anybody use their lake house and they just go go here's the key just lock it up when you're done and when it burned to the ground other than the things in it that they wanted like pictures and memorabilia they didn't cry over it they didn't grieve over it they didn't because it didn't own them and that's why you know it's okay to have stuff but does your stuff have you does it own you does it control you Paul says this to the Colossians since you have been raised to new life with Christ which should be I hope every guy in the room but I'm smart enough to know it's probably not every guy in the room but if you have been raised in life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven. What does that mean? It's real. Jesus came from there, and Jesus went back there, and what did he tell the disciples? Where I'm going, you're going to go. And I'm going to go there and prepare a place for you. And if it wasn't so, I wouldn't tell you so. It's real. 
where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. Now, I know that's hard because you've never seen heaven, right? I've never seen heaven. And if you go by the description of some pastors, I don't want to go there because it just sounds really boring. And, you know, streets of gold, who cares? I don't really know what it looks like. And I don't think he's saying, think about what heaven looks like. He's thinking, think about heaven as a place with no sin, no temptation, no pain, no sorrow, no death, perfect communion with God. You'll never have another fight with anybody in your life. You'll never be jealous of anybody in your life. You'll never see something that you covet and you can't have. That's what he's saying. Think about that. Wouldn't that be great? Here's what goes through my mind. Sitting by a pool that will never break. Sitting, you know, enjoying things that I never have to take care of. I never have to pay for. They will never break down on me. I will never be tempted by anything anymore in my life. Think about that. Wouldn't you rather be there than here? See, that's his point. But we get so hung up in these temporal things. And Paul told Timothy, his young protege, to tell people, those in his church who are rich, teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money. Now, he didn't say, teach those who are rich to give it all away. He didn't say that. He says, just don't be proud and don't trust in your money. Because guess what? It could go away tomorrow. It's so unreliable, he says. Their trust should be where? In God who richly gives us all we need for our what? Enjoyment. But see, where we always get into a twist with this is that you got your needs, or at least your list of needs, and God has his list of your needs. And nine times out of ten, guys, they don't match. They don't. God, I need this, I need this. I need, think about your prayer life again. I need this, 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 this. And God goes, mm, no, you don't. And how do you know that? Because he never gives you the stuff you're asking for. God, I asked you, okay, well, yeah, you didn't get it. The answer was no. I gave you this instead. Well, I didn't want that. But that's what you need. You know, when I was on the elder board years ago, um, we did then what we do now is we ask people on Sunday mornings to turn in prayer requests. And so those get compiled. And by Monday, we get them. And there's most of the time, there's probably three or four sheets front and back of just prayer requests. And I remember the first time I saw that list, I was just overwhelmed. Like, number one, by the sheer volume. And then just the thought of praying for people in our congregation who are asking us as pastors and leaders to pray for them. And I'd been reading through the prayers of, of uh, Paul, and I noticed one thing about the prayers of Paul. Paul never, that I know of, prayed for a specific need that somebody had that was physical or temporal or earthly in nature, like a new house or healing or that they could get a new job. What he tended to pray for were spiritual things. And it kind of convicted me because I, I started looking at this list and I saw everything from um, my wife has cancer, please pray, pray for healing, I need a new job, my husband's left me, my kid's in rebellion, and you'd see all these things. And, and, and 
what it seemed like God was telling me is, okay, what do they really need? I know what they're asking for. And God tells us to ask. But what do they really need? And here's what hit me. If somebody comes to you and says, I need healing, would you pray for my healing? Pray for it. With all the faith you can muster, pray for their healing. But what if they don't get healed? It's not because you don't lack faith. You might. But Jesus said all we have to have is enough faith as a mustard seed. It may be that God has something else in store for them. So he may either never heal them or delay the healing of them. So what do they need if that's the case? Patience, peace, joy, trust. See, those are spiritual things that every one of us need. See, if, if I could ask God for everything I think I need, and even those things that I think are legit, like healing, um, more money, God, if I could just get a raise, it, it would just, man, if you could do that. You know, God's done that for me. And I've spent every penny of it. And I've never solved my problem because what I didn't need was more money. I needed to know how to manage money better. I needed wisdom, not more money. See, we don't really know what we need. And so this idea of don't trust in your money, trust in God, and he will give you the things you truly need. And with it will come what? Enjoyment. Because it will bring satisfaction and it won't be meaningless like what? The stuff of this world. Again, nothing wrong with this world. Nothing wrong with stuff. Nothing wrong with enjoying the things of this earth. But if you put your affections in it, it will turn around and bite you. So this idea of your eyes is really going to be important as we go further into this. In 1 John, he says, the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure. Think about that. I spent 29 years in advertising, and I've told you guys this before. The joke in advertising is our job was to get you to buy things you don't need with money you don't have to impress people you don't even like. Think about any commercial you watch. Any, anything you see on the internet, and you look at that and go, God, i got to have that. What is it directed at? It's trying to get you dissatisfied with what you already have. Your car, your house, your clothes, your current set of golf clubs. Man, i got to have that driver. Go talk to your wife. No, you don't. We need a new dryer, not a driver. You know, but, but it's driven by dissatisfaction. And so he says, the world only offers you a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see and pride in our achievements and possessions. So you get it, you put it up, you look at it, and you go, look at this. And then you look across the street and you go, hey, when did he get that? I got to have that now. But it builds this pride he says, these things are not from the Father. Where are they from? They're from the world. And the world will never bring you satisfaction. What did we read from Solomon? It's all meaningless. It's vanity of vanities. It's like chasing the wind. And sometimes that's how I have felt living in this world because, I, you know, you get the new iPhone, right? And the next thing you know, you're chasing the wind because the next one comes out. 
And it does things that yours doesn't do. And it's got more memory than yours has. You know, it, we're always chasing the wind because everything is new. Everything is meant to age and go out of style. So then he leads into these kind of obscure, what I call Yoda verses. Uh, because they don't really seem to make any sense. And they're all about having an eye for the things of God. Uh, and, and, and I want you to understand what he's saying. He says, your eye is like a lamp. Okay. That provides light for your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is filled with light. Now, I am not going to criticize or critique Jesus for his analogies. Okay. He's Jesus. He's the son of God. But I really kind of wrestle with this and I go, okay, I think I would, I would have used a different analogy, but he's Jesus. And he says, your eye is like a lamp. Okay, well, I think about a lamp, and I think about a lamp that shines out, and the eye doesn't really shine, and so I get lost in this. But he has a meaning behind it, and he has a method to what he's trying to say. He says, your eye is like a lamp that provides light, but it's providing light where? Into your body. And if you think about it, what does your eye do? Your eye allows light into your head so that you can see. It illuminates. And if you have a bad eye, like a cataract or something like that, what happens? You don't get enough light to the back of your eye. And you don't see clearly. Things are dim. They're foggy. They're indistinct. That's really what he's talking about here. What you want is a healthy eye that brings in enough light, the right kind of light. And the word he uses is interesting because it's the word hoplos in the Greek. And it means single, whole, single of purpose. Your eye has one purpose, right? What is it? To see. And if it doesn't do that one purpose, it's not really any good for you, right? If you have an eye that suddenly stops seeing, you have an eye in your socket, but it's not doing its job. And so this idea of healthy means your eye is doing what God intended it to do, letting light in so that you can see clearly. And that's really the whole idea of, of just loyalty to God, commitment to God, singular in purpose. Why were you created? You have a purpose. You've been set apart by God. If you're in Christ, you belong to God the Father. You've been bought with a price, a very high price, the death of His Son, and you have a purpose. You have a singular purpose. Are you functioning in your purpose? So your eye, like a lamp, is to have that purpose, and you are to have a singular purpose. And you're not to be wishy-washy about it. So it's this idea of where's your loyalty? Where are your affections? Are your affections in the things of this earth or are they in the kingdom of God? What do you look at and long for? And one of the ways I think that helps us see this is what do you wake up at night worrying about? Do you wake up at night going, man, I got to finish reading Ezekiel. You know, I, I, I should have finished last night and I just, I just got to finish reading Ezekiel. No, you wake up thinking about how you're going to pay the bills. You think about, am I going to get that raise? You think about all kinds of things. You know, my wife just got back from Ethiopia. And uh, she's going through jet lag and, and trying to get back into the swing of things. So, so we're laying in bed the other night. And my wife sleepwalks. And she sleepwalks when she's under stress. Well, she has spent 
three and a half weeks in Ethiopia, and she's just gotten back, and she's still a little bit under stress. And so I'm sound asleep, and my wife bolts up in bed, scares the snot out of me, and she yells out, where is the baby? Hey, I'm 62 years old, okay? And I said, honey, there is no baby. And she looks at me with eyes wide open, dead asleep, and she goes, where is the baby? I'm telling you, honey, there's, there's no baby. And unless you brought one home in your luggage, I, there's no baby here. I don't know what you're, th- please go to sleep. And she would just stare at me like, you know, I had taken the baby. And finally I said, honey, you just got to lay down. You're, you're just dreaming. And she goes, I, I'm, I've got to find the baby. And here's what she does. This is every time she does this. She finally just closes her eyes. She falls back in the pillow and she's sound asleep. And then I can't sleep the rest of the night. <laughs> Because I'm thinking, I hope she's not pregnant, okay? Um, Because she's been gone three and a half weeks. What do you worry about? What, What do you wake up panicked about? This is about where's your loyalty? Where's your heart fidelity? Is it for the things of God or the things of this earth? And guys, there's never gonna be a point in your life where it's always about God, okay? You're not a saint. But I guarantee it, it ought to be moving that direction where, and I, maybe it comes with age. The older I get, the more I think about heaven. Um, and maybe that's because I hurt like hell. I don't, I don't know. But um, I think about heaven far more than I used to. And I long for the idea of heaven. It's not that I hate this world and I don't enjoy it and I don't like being with you guys. It's just that I know heaven's going to be better than this. And I'm kind of tired of this. I'm tired of the, the trouble and the turmoil and things breaking down and sin and the newspaper and again think of the things of heaven none of that will be there there will be no political parties in heaven there will be no 24-hour news channels in heaven there will be no internet in heaven there will be no facebook twitter there will be none of that garbage in heaven think about it that makes me want to go right now So it's this idea, again, of singular purpose. He says, the good eye is the one that's fixed on God. Where's your hope? God or this earth? Is it unwavering in its gaze, or do do you have a wandering eye? And we all suffer from a wandering eye, right? We, we, We can have a great quiet time, wake up in the morning, spend time in the Word, and then go out, and suddenly our eyes just wandering everywhere. We're looking at anything and everything. And we're tempted, and we we gotta have this, and we gotta have that. You know, uh, over the years, I've, I've worked with enough guys who struggle with pornography that I think I've read every book there is to read on pornography to help guys with it. And one of the things in almost every book that they recommend if you struggle with pornography is this thing called bouncing the eyes. And it's a pretty simple concept. If you uh, struggle with lust and you're walking down the street and you see a girl, she's not dressed appropriately and you're to bounce the eyes. You're to look somewhere else. Okay, just bounce your eyes. Well, here's the problem with that, you know, at least my experience has been, you bounce the eyes and there's another one, you know. Um, It's a problem here at church on Sunday morning, you know, unless there's something wrong with you. There's a lot of attractive women in this church and you you can see one and go, oh my gosh. And seeing an attractive woman is not a sin, but if you start staring and drooling and dreaming and thinking and going places, okay, you've now moved into lust. And as far as Jesus says, that's adultery. But 
bounce the eye. Okay, you do it. You bounce the eye. Oh, there's another one. She's even better than the other. Okay, well, I'll bounce it over here. Well, pretty soon you're going you're gonna to pull, pull a neck muscle. It's hard to keep your eyes fixed on God. And number one, you can't see Him. But it's a challenge, but it's one that we have to face and realize that it's only as I spend time in this Word that I have the strength and the endurance and the help to do what I'm supposed to do, to keep my eyes fixed on the right thing. Think about the right things. Fix your eyes on heaven so you don't have this wandering eye. So an eye that has sing a singular purpose, a single focus, will produce one thing and one thing only. What? Purity. Light. And that's what light is all about. Jesus is light. You know, 1 John talks a lot about light. That Jesus is the light who came into the world to what? To rid it of darkness. And then he comes to dwell in you and I so that we might become light and we might impact the world that's darkened with sin. But light is huge, but you've got to have a singular focus, a good eye. But then he goes on and says, well, what if your eye is bad? What do you got a bad eye? Your whole body will be full of darkness. Well, again, it's just the idea, how does your eye work? It's a lens. It lets light in. And if it's got a cataract or it's got something blocking it or it goes blind, the light can't come in and that eye is no longer doing what God intended it to do. And the word for bad just simply means bad or wicked. See, if you lose your singular focus, if your eye, your life starts, stops letting in the light and you stop keeping your focus on God, guess what? It will produce wickedness, whether you planned it or not. If you get up every morning and you say, I don't have time to read this thing. I, I, don't, I don't get it. I don't want to. I'm, I'm going to read the newspaper. I'm going to watch the internet. I'm going to you will end up with an eye that wanders and it will eventually produce wickedness. Not what it was intended to do. And you will become spiritually blind. One of the things Jesus said about the Pharisees, he called them blind guides on a number of occasions because they didn't have a singular focus. What were they obsessed about? What everybody thought about them. Go back to the beginning of chapter 6. They wanted to be known in the, the places as the, the most righteous. They wanted to be noticed for their robes, their prayers. They wanted to be seen as holy, but they didn't have a singular eye. And they were dark. They were devoid of what? God's precepts, the understanding of God's Word. You know, here's a really simple thing, guys. If you don't spend any time in this book, you will not know anything about this book. And therefore, you will be blind to what this book teaches. That's why Jesus told the disciples in Matthew chapter 28, go and make disciples and do what? Baptize them, yes. But he also said, and teach them everything I have commanded you. That's really hard to do if you don't know what he commanded. And you will produce what? Darkness. Spiritual darkness. And I love this. Just to help you understand how this ties back to the Old Testament. If you go to the book of Proverbs, listen to what it says. A stingy man, okay? And that word in the Hebrew means a man whose eye is evil. He's got a bad eye and he's stingy. I don't want to share. A stingy man hastens after wealth and does not know that poverty will come upon him. I got to get money. I got to have wealth. I got to have more. And I don't want to lose what I have. And I don't want to share what I have. 
Proverbs 23, 6. Do not eat the bread of a man who is stingy, a man with an evil eye. Do not desire his delicacies. Don't be like him. Don't look at his lifestyle and go, man, that's got, that guy's got everything. He's got an evil eye because he's what? He's obsessed with his stuff. You don't want to be like that. And then Matthew 6, 24, it says, no one can serve two masters. So Jesus goes on. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God and money. You've heard this verse so many times in your life. And, and keep it in the context. What's he saying? You can't serve this stuff on earth and serve God. You can't have affections for this and affections for God. It won't work. And yet we try it all the time. And we try to satisfy ourselves with stuff. And we end up being disloyal to God and putting our allegiance where it doesn't belong. So what do you love most? The things of this earth or the things of heaven? And here's the thing in my life that I've, I've always seen. When a trial comes, that's when it gets exposed. When something breaks, that's when it gets exposed. When something gets stolen, that's when it gets exposed because you can't stand the thought of losing whatever. It, it just kills you. Well, it kind of warns you that maybe your heart's in the wrong place, but if you can hold on to that stuff, whatever stuff you have, if you can hold on to it with a loose hand and God takes it and you go, that's all right, I can live without it. That shows you that something's right. Something is right about your heart, your affections, your eye is good, and it will produce good things. So we need to have this eternal perspective. And our love for the things of the world is really obvious. You know what you love. You know what you like. And, and he, he ends this all with this idea that you want to know what you love. What do you worry about? What do you get anxious about? We worry about not having enough and we worry about losing what, what, what you do have. You know, you may not like your house, but you'd hate for it to burn down. You may not have enough money, but you'd hate to lose the money you already have. We're always worrying about stuff. And anxiety and worry is a great picture of what you really love. What do you worry about? Do you worry about your kids coming to faith in Christ? That's a kingdom thing. That's a good thing. Do you worry about your neighbor hearing about the gospel through you and that your life would be a light in his life? That's a good thing. Worry about that. But don't worry about your car, your house, what school are you going to put your kids in, how are you going to pay for this, how are you going to pay for that. He says, do not be anxious about your life. He will use that word five times in 10 verses. Anytime you study the scriptures, repetition is huge. Jesus repeats himself over and over again. Do not be anxious. And he says, don't be anxious about these things. Look at this list. Life, food, drink, body, clothes, future. Those things include everything you worry about. Whether it's the stock market, whether it's your car, your house, all of that gets encompassed in these things. He says, don't worry about those things. Instead, trust God for these things. Now, here's what I know. That's hard to do. Because here's what I know. God doesn't seem to worry about them like I do. I'm a better worrier. Because I worry about some of this stuff and God doesn't give it to me. I at least will do something about it. I'll borrow money. I'll go into debt. I'll put it on a credit card. If I need more clothes or I need whatever, I'll get it. And, and if I turn it over to God, he just seems to be okay with not giving it to me. Well, maybe it's because you don't need it. 
Maybe it's because he's going to give you the things that you really need. See, these things are not unimportant. Food, clothing, all of that. It's not unimportant. They just shouldn't be the most important thing in your life and in my life. And yet that's what they become. He says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Now, is that prayer or is that statement something you can turn into a prayer and say, okay, God, Jesus said all these things will be added to you if I just seek after righteousness. So I'm going to seek after righteousness. I went to Bible study. Now give me my car. I read the Bible this morning. Now bless me with something financial. Is that what Jesus is saying? No. He's basically, he's, he's got a, def, a different definition of these things. He's going to use the same list, but it's these things. See, here's the deal with you and I. It isn't enough to be clothed. We want to be richly clothed. You know, when my son, my youngest son, he's a Marine now, but when he was uh, in high school, my daughters who are older than him, um, they had no problem going to a resale shop. And my son was obsessed with having nothing but the best. Well, we couldn't afford for him to wear nothing but the best. So my daughters would go to him and say, Hudson, why don't you go with us to the real resale shop? And they have great clothes. They're name brand clothes. He goes, I'm not going to wear somebody else's old clothes. I said, well, half of them, you know, they don't even look like they've been worn. He goes, no, I'm not going to do it. And he wouldn't. He was obsessed with the external. He was obsessed with rich clothes. And, and I'll never forget one time I had to take him to go buy a suit for a prom. And we go, and I picked a store that had a sale, and I walk in, and I go to this rack, and I said, what do you think about this? I don't like it. Okay, how about this one? I don't like it. That's not, a, that, that's not even in style. Well, okay, they're just selling out-of-style clothes, I guess, you know. And so I, I worked and worked, and everything I showed him, he just, and then the, the salesman comes up. And this guy was slick. And he looks at my son, and he goes, Man, you're a good-looking kid. What are you, what, six, six ones? You know, he goes, yeah, I bet probably six, 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 two. Yeah, you're real athletic. Yeah, look at your build. And, and my, his head got bigger than it already was, and he's just, he's all puffed up. And he goes, uh, so what are you doing? Are you going to, going to the prom? And he goes, yeah, 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 I bet she's a pretty girl. And he's just like lathering it on. My son's just sucking it up. And, and he, he goes, so what do you need? you need a suit? And he goes, yeah, yeah, I need a suit. And he goes, and I kid you not, he walks over to the same rack, he gets out the same suit, and he holds it up and he goes, what do you think about this one? Oh, I think that's great. <laughs> and I wanted to slap my son. And, but this guy was like, oh yeah, this is the latest cut. And, and you know, I don't, we may have to tailor it because man, that, you, you got a huge chest. And I don't know, you know, you know a little waist, huge chest. And I'm like, oh, God. I, I'm not gonna do that with him. If you wanna suck up to my son, you go right ahead. I'm not gonna tip you. But my son wanted to be richly clothed. See, it's not enough to have clothes. You've got to have rich clothes. It's not enough to be fed. You want to be well-fed. I want to eat at the best restaurants. It's not enough to have health. You want to, you want to be immune from illness. You ever get mad at God because you get sick? Sure you do. Or your friend gets sick, your wife gets sick. Yeah, I, I met with a guy the other night, Tuesday night, uh, before last, at the other campus. And he'd never been before. He came to our, our study. And when I finished, he, they were having discussion. And the, one of the guys comes and gets me and goes, you need to come over to the table. So I go over there. And this guy's like on a rant. 
and he has a, a brain cancer. He's lost his job. He's, been, he's lost his wife. He's lost his kids. He's got, and he went through this list of everything he's lost. And he said, I'm just, I am so mad at God. And I said, well, I think, I, I think I'd be mad too. I said, you're just not justified to be mad at God. He said, why the hell not? I said, well, because you don't have any right to be mad at God. I said, I don't know that God did any of this to you. You live in a fallen world. We don't know what caused any of this. But you don't have a right to be mad. You can be mad at God, but you don't have a right to be mad at God. And he, he, he point blank told me, he said, I'm a believer. I shouldn't be sick. I'm like, okay, what Bible are you using? Because I, I, I can't find that in Scripture. But see, that's what we think. I'm a believer. Why am I sick? Why did my wife leave me? Why did, why did my kids get hooked on crack? Why did, whatever. We're not promised any of those things. It's not enough to have eternal life. We demand our best life now. I want it now. And Jesus is like, you know, just wait. I don't want to wait. I want it now. And I love this parable that Jesus tells. And you're, you're, it's the sowing of the seed. And he says in verse uh, 22 of chapter 13 of Matthew, the seed that fell among the thorns represents those who hear God's word, but all too quickly what? The message is crowded out by the worries of this life and the lure of wealth. You can share the gospel with people and they can hear about heaven. They can hear about forgiveness of sins. They can hear about redemption. And then they look over there and they go, yeah, I got to have this. That sounds great, but I got to have this. Here's the sad thing is that's not just true of the lost. That's true of you and I as believers. That God has said, you've got this waiting for you. You've got eternal life. You've got forgiveness of sins. You've got no pain, no sorrow. And you want this. I got to have a new set of golf clubs. I got to have this. I got to have that. Whatever it is. And you've missed the point. And you don't really trust God. So Peter says, humble yourselves under the mighty power of God. And at the right time, he will lift you up in honor. Give all your worries and cares to him. For he cares about you. So, what do we do with this? God doesn't want you to be poor. God doesn't want you to live in a, a squatter's hut. God doesn't want you to sell all your possessions and give them to the poor. He wants you to have your heart in the right place. There are miserable poor people. There are miserable wealthy people. The problem is your heart. The problem is where's your affection. So here's your questions. Based on what we've talked about for the last four weeks, discuss what you think it looks like to seek God's kingdom and his righteousness. I purposely didn't address that because I think you can address it at your table. What does it look like to seek his kingdom? How do you do that? Maybe you've got something you can share with a group, but talk about that. What are some of the things that cause you to have a wandering eye and tempt you to take your focus off eternal things? What's your weak point? And please don't say, well, I know a guy. He struggles. No. What's your weak point? Just be honest. What gets your eye off focus? And then finally, what are some tangible ways in which we show that we trust in the things of this world more than we do God in your life, in your daily life? And what are you going to do about it? Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for these men. Thank you for this passage. It's a tough passage. It's a, it's a punch in the gut passage because we all struggle with loving the things of this world. And our, we all struggle with a wandering eye. 
because we see so many things that look so glittery and shiny and we got to have them and we think they'll make us happy and bring us satisfaction and significance and they never deliver. And all the while, we've got our eyes off of you. Father, help us to be men who, who really do seek first the kingdom of God and your righteousness and leave the rest up to you. You'll take care of us. You'll meet our needs. You may not give us all the things we've dreamed about and that are promised to us by the world, but you will meet our needs and you will give us contentment and joy and peace. So I pray your blessings as they talk, that it would be open and honest and, and gracious and kind and everyone would listen and participate and that, Father, your Holy Spirit will work in a mighty way. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.